You might be asking, you might be asking why it is that I am starting a teaching series today that is focused on just 50% of the congregation. Why is it that uh, we are going to be tackling such touchy things like masculinity and femininity and, and certain roles that God has given us in this life to live? You might be thinking, Matt, are you, a, are you a glutton for punishment? Do you not like your job? Well, the truth is I love my job very much. And, and the necessity of this conversation, the impetus for this series arises out of my, my love for you. And the conversations I have with you on a regular basis and, and the work that I do in loving and, and caring for you and your spiritual lives, especially the men among us. And there is something that, that I have noticed, not just in our church, but in our wider culture, that I, I can't not speak to. And maybe you've noticed it too. Sociologist Richard Reeves uh, recently published a, a really fascinating book called Of Men and Boys. And in this book, he talks about what he calls a, an unspoken underlying anxiety in the world today about the status of men and boys. It is an unspoken underlying anxiety that deserves, he says, a public conversation. And, and in this book, he, he outlines a, a a good deal of data that, that helps illustrate his point of what's going on in the world right now in the lives of, of men and boys. And what he, what he illustrates is, is a trend downward in a bunch of critical categories. Let me share just some of these with you. Uh, according to his work, Reeves says this, that men and boys in the United States are undergoing a mental health regression Right now in the United States, three quarters of deaths of despair, those are suicides and overdoses, belong to men. There's also, he says, a relational regression. 70% of divorces now here in the United States are initiated by women. And there is an educational regression, a rather steep one. Now just 43% of bachelor's degrees belong to men, 57% to women. Two out of five associate's degrees, two out of five master's degrees. Boys in high school are now 50% more likely to fail in math, science, and reading than girls. And there is an employment regression. More than nine million men of prime working age, which is considered to be 25 to 54, nine million men of prime working age have opted out of the job market altogether. And that's a number pre-COVID. It's likely much worse now. If, if you do some of the reading around this and ask virtually any social scientist, what they'll say is what we're seeing among men and boys is, is not merely a balancing of the scales between men and women, but what you're seeing at the very least in the West, in particular here in the United States, is that many men and boys are kind of going off a cliff relationally, educationally, spiritually, emotionally. Something is happening. And I'll tell you what, I have seen it too. Now, I am not a sociologist, I'm a pastor. And so as we deal with this, I promise to do my best to stay in my lane. And my lane is this, I believe that at least a part of the issue that we're seeing in the lives of men and boys in our congregation and the culture and community at large is that we lack a compelling vision for what it means to be a man. 
In particular, for men who are in the church, we lack a compelling vision for what it means to be a man made by God for a life that gives glory to him and blessing to others. We have no picture in our minds of what that is, of who we're supposed to be, of the path we're supposed to walk, of the man we're supposed to become. And so what I propose over the next several weeks as we have this conversation together as church is that we might together paint a picture of who a man as a follower of Jesus is called and created to be. And I believe that, that even though I'm speaking directly to maybe half the room, I believe that everyone has a vested interest in this conversation. Because if you are not a guy, you have men in your life that you are rooting for, that you are cheering on. You have a vested interest in their success. You are trying to raise them, these boys, into a man who can bring glory to God and blessing to others. You have a vested interest in this conversation and a role to play in it as well. Now, as we dive in, there's some foundational things that I have to set up. Some things you, you may already know, but are critical to this conversation. And the first is this. As people of faith, what we believe is that mankind, men and women, were handcrafted by God. That humanity is not an accident, a product of random collisions of atoms over the course of billions of years, but, but that we are here on purpose for a purpose. That humanity was handcrafted by God. And not only were we handcrafted by God, but, but God has said in the scriptures that mankind is the crown of his creation. And as the crown of his creation, he not only created a, a generic humanity, but he created men and women. And that's some of the certain obvious distinctions between men and women are not merely ornamental, but are in fact essential to our nature and our identities and the roles we play in this world. Controversial idea in this day and age, I know, but that's what we have always believed. And we don't get that belief out of nothing. We get that belief not just from biology and sociology, but also from theology. We get that belief from the scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let me remind you of this if you know these words already. So God created man, mankind that is, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind, unlike anything else in all of creation, is made, the scriptures say, in the image of God. But in telling us that mankind is made in the image of God, immediately the writer of Genesis tells us that it is both male and female made in the image of God. In other words, there is something about maleness that uniquely reflects the image, the person, the likeness, the goodness, the glory of God to the rest of creation. And there is something about femaleness that, that demonstrates the beauty and the glory and the goodness of God to the rest of the world. And then when these two things are together, male and female, building a life together, loving each other, serving the world together, using their gifts together, leading alongside each other, that, that whenever men and women are together in their maleness and their femaleness and their masculinity and femininity, whenever they are embracing those things and out in the world, engaging the world for the sake of the world, they together provide a more complete picture, a glimpse, a glimmer of the maker of the world. And nothing else in all of creation tells that story. Nothing else in all of creation. Elephants are great, but they do not display the image of God to the rest of the world. 
Whales are awesome and huge. They do not display the image of God to the rest of the world. You know what I like? Baboons, because they're nuts. <laughs> do not display the image of God to the rest of the world. But women do. And men do. And together we tell a story to the rest of the creation that nothing else does about who made us and why we're here and what's important. Now, that's one of the reasons, probably the primary reason, why people of faith in this current moment get so turned around and so frustrated by the deconstruction of the complementary notion of male and female identities. It's not merely because men feel threatened by, by certain power structures being taken away from them that they've had, they've had the advantage of for certain years, although some of it's probably that. But for people of faith who understand the scriptures and understand who made us and how he made us and, and what's unique about male and female and, and the image that we give to the rest of the world, the deconstruction of the complementary nature of male and female and the essence of masculinity and femininity to our, to our identity and our callings in this world, if that gets deconstructed, what's deconstructed is not merely power structures, but what's deconstructed is not merely roles that we play in society. What's deconstructed is an opportunity for the rest of the world to see and glimpse the glory of God because we, as male and female, are made in his image. And that's the loss that we mourn. Now, made in the image of God also implies or prescribes certain things to men and women. As men and women, we have both a responsibility in this world as men and women, and we're also told to have an essential relationship in this world. Responsibility and relationship. You see this in the earliest pages of Genesis. God creates mankind in his own image, male and female, he creates them, and then he sends humanity, Adam and Eve, men and women, masculine and feminine, he sends them out into the world for a task. And they each have a unique part to play, a unique representation of God to give to the rest of the world. And together, we are to create in this world, to give life to this world, and to, to build and steward and, and bring beauty in this world. And we do that together. We have a responsibility to live out our maleness and our femaleness in this world for the glory of God and the blessing of others, to cultivate creation to his glory and our good as men and women. That's the responsibility. But then along the way, we have this critical relationship, and the critical relationship is between man and God, between female and God, between man and woman and their maker, and that relationship is to stay intact because that relationship is how you know how to faithfully live out the responsibility. But then if you know the story, you know that in Genesis chapter three, something awful happens to say the least. The man and the woman who were given this responsibility, they say to themselves, you know what, we might be better off without the relationship. And that's when sin enters the picture and humanity, male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve, they are kicked out of the garden, which symbolizes them being outside of God's family, outside of his presence, and the relationship is functionally severed. And so now what you have is a man and a woman, a humanity who still has the responsibility to go out and be men and women in the world with no relationship to the one who has given them that responsibility. And now there's sin in the world and corruption inside of them and what do you think is gonna happen? And indeed, here's a truth that, that applies to so many situations and scenarios in your life and mine. 
Responsibility divorced from relationship leads to ruin. Responsibility divorced from relationship leads to ruin. When you are responsible for something at home, at work, at church, the culture at large, yet you have a dysfunctional relationship with the person or the organization or the thing that gave you that responsibility, or you have a broken dysfunctional relationship with the people or the place that you serve as you execute that responsibility, it is going to go sideways. Because the only option you have as you live out that responsibility is to just follow your gut and do what you want. And when human beings just go with their gut and do what they want, it leads to ruin every time. In order to live the relationship effectively, the responsibility effectively, you have to have the relationship. And it's into this broken dynamic where we have a responsibility to be a man in this world, to be a woman in this world, but no relationship with the one whose image we bear in this world that all the dysfunction comes in. It's in this broken status that misogyny is born. And it is evil and wrong in all of its forms. It's into this, this broken, dysfunctional status where apathetic manhood emerges. And it is evil and wrong in all of its forms. Amen. It's in this broken reality where abusive patriarchies develop. And anytime power is abused or misapplied, it is broken and sinful and evil and wrong. But hear me on this. It is not, these things do not exist because maleness is inherently problematic. These problems do not exist because, because there is something fundamentally corrupted about the distinction between masculinity and femininity or that there is, there is an essential problem with the notion of masculinity and femininity. The problems exist because you have the responsibility and the reality of masculinity and femininity divorced from the relationship with the one who gave you these callings and identities in the first place. And so we're just wandering around in the dark, hurting each other all over the place, saying, is this what it means to be a guy? No, okay. Is this what it means to be a guy? No, and just ruining stuff. That's what's happening. And so, and so first things first, if we want to help men, guys, if we want to help each other understand rightly what it means to live out the calling of a biblical masculine identity in this world, it begins not by talking about the responsibility that you have, all the stuff that we're supposed to do. It begins by talking about the relationship that is required. Because if you talk about the responsibility, what it means to be a man, but you never fix, never lean into, never embrace the relationship that is required, you will continue to cause harm, or at the very least, be profoundly ineffective in your life as a guy. The relationship is central, because that's where we get the direction, the guidance on what it means to live out the responsibility. And of course, this is where Jesus comes in. And this is what makes his work so essential for everybody, but in particular in this conversation. Because among the many things that have been given to you because of Jesus Christ, you have been given a right relationship with your creator. 
the relationship between all of creation, but between you as a guy and your God has been fixed. You now have the access to the Father that is necessary for you to rightly live out the responsibilities and the identity that he has given to you. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is Paul, again, talking about the transformation that takes place when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, after he lists off a whole bunch of awful broken things, he says, and such were some of you. You were owned by your broken identity, but you were washed, you were sanctified, made holy, you were justified, made right with the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're here as a baptized follower of Jesus Christ with faith in your heart, even the tiniest, tiniest little bit of faith, trust, dependence upon Jesus, what that means for you, men, what that means for you is that you are forgiven of every sin. What it means is that you are, you are a part of God's family forever. What that means is that you have his own Holy Spirit living within you to empower you and change you and challenge you. And what that means is that you have a relationship that you can lean into for all the guidance and direction that you need in order to know what, it's, what it means to be the man that you were called and created to be. But, but, but understand, understand that, that you don't have to change. Salvation and maturation don't necessarily go together. You can get saved, so to speak, and stay the same. And let me tell you this, most people do. They just do. Because while salvation is passive, it happens to us as a pure gift, sanctification, the process of being made holy, made different, understanding who we're called to be in Jesus Christ as a man, as a woman, as a follower of God, that, that is a cooperation. And it is a process of being molded and shaped, formed and forged. And you need to understand that it is a forging and a forming being forged and formed by God into a new creation. But most people choose to stay the same. Amen. And that's a big part of the problem, guys, that we experience. Because salvation and maturation, they don't necessarily go together. Now, you might be saying to yourself, okay, well, like, I'd like to mature. I'd like to have a, a clearer understanding of who I'm called to be as a man of God. I'm down for a little bit of formation and being forged into someone who, who is fully embracing the biblical masculine identity, like to the glory of God and blessing of others. Like I'm down for that. What in the world does, what does that look like? How do I get in on that? Well, think back to the relationship between Paul and Timothy. I believe it's really instructive for us. Paul is Timothy's mentor, not just in being a pastor, but as you read the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters that Paul writes to Timothy in particular, as you read these letters, you get a sense that, that Paul is not just helping him understand what it means to be a pastor, but he is forming, Paul is forming Timothy and what it means to be a man of God in general, a follower of Jesus Christ in a crazy world. And look at what Paul says to Timothy. Look again. I won't read through all of it. Just, just take a glance out on the screen, and I've, I've highlighted a couple of things. Look at this. In essence, Paul says this. Look, 
Timothy, I've lived a certain kind of life. I've, I've lived, aimed at a certain level of integrity. I've embraced certain higher values. You should imitate me. Care about the things that I've cared about. But then he says, look, being a man of faith and embracing certain values and certain integrity, he says, it comes with suffering and difficulty. He says, it's part of the deal. Embrace it. And then he says, place yourself under the things that you have learned, the transcendent truths about God that have been given to you, the truths of the scriptures that have been handed to you. Place yourself under these things and let them weigh on you and shape you and challenge you. And what's the point of it all? He explicitly says at the end, to make the man of God complete, equipped for good. It comes through the forging and the forming. It comes through a pursuit of certain virtues. It comes through the embrace of a life of integrity. It comes through a life of putting yourself under the truths of the scripture and letting them confront you and, and create conflict within you and, and wrestle with these things, be burdened by these things. It, it, comes, it comes by being put under the weight of these things and letting them transform you. It's a forging and a forming, as Paul says, to make the man of God complete and equipped for good. But far too many men of faith forsake this journey altogether in favor of a life of comfort and ease. Rather than say, I'm going to become someone new or lean in to who I'm supposed to be as a man and be forged and formed by a higher calling, higher virtues, higher values, the truth of God, we say, that sounds hard. And so we choose a life of ease. But a life of ease will not make you into a man of compassion. A life of ease will not make you into a man of kindness. A life of ease will not make you into a man who will give his life for another. A life of ease will not make you the kind of man that can be respected by anybody other than your mother. The man you were called and created to be is on the other side of a thousand things you would rather avoid. but are worth wrestling with. Higher virtue, higher calling, the truths of God pressing down on you, molding you, and shaping you. I've got an image for you. It's one that I've used a, a bunch of times before. It's that of a rock tumbler. A rock tumbler. I've used this before because it's such a perfect image of how we actually grow and change in God's world. Whether, whether you're a man or a woman, this, this is how we grow and change. If you've ever polished, polished some rocks for a hobby, it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating process. You know, you can grab some rocks off the side of the road or off some beach you're walking on and you can put them in the tumbler and you put in the tumbler uh, grit, some, some dirt or some kind of specialized sand and you add some, some liquid in there, you, you tighten it up, you put it in the tumbler, you flip the switch on and you let it roll. You let it tumble. Uh, for days at a time, sometimes weeks at a time. And then you open it up, you pour it out, you wash out, you, you wash off the rocks, and what you discover is that they've been made shiny. Not just shiny, but really transformed into something beautiful, something worth celebrating and keeping, maybe making some jewelry out of. They become brand new. But how do they become brand new? By crashing into other rocks 
by being rubbed up against the grit that's in the tumbler millions and millions and millions and millions of times. The rough edges are knocked off and that's how you're made brand new. Friends, this is how we mature as followers of Jesus. This is how we are transformed into the men and the women that we are called to be. It is a constant collision with the truth of God. It is a constant collision with the high standards he's called us to live. It is a constant collision with higher virtues, higher values, a life of love, things like justice and wisdom and truth and peace and honor. It is a constant collision with those things and a collision with your own selfishness, your own corrupt human nature. And each time you come into a collision with the high standard and your low nature, it is also a collision with God's grace which knows no end. And each time you are wrecked, he revives you with his promise of mercy and grace that knows no end. It is being wrecked and revived, wrecked and revived, wrecked and revived, wrecked and revived over and over and over and over because you are in the tumbler confronting the high things, the good things, the noble things, the true things, and letting them do a work on you and in you that in the end transforms you because each time it knocks you down, it washes you over with the truth that you are loved anyway. And that's what changes us. That's the forging and the forming. And so for the guys in the room, I have a not so rhetorical question for you. Do you have any desire within you any curiosity at all about what it means to be a man made in the image of God for the glory of God and the good of others? Do you have any willingness to get in the tumbler and to be forged and formed, to not just have a life of ease, but to be pressed down and shaken, but not crushed and made into something new? Do you have any desire at all? Because you should. Because you got one shot at this. You should. And the hour has come. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 at verse 11. Romans chapter 13, Paul says this. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He said that to an immature church that was settling for a lack of maturity that was choosing salvation and no maturation. And he says to them, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. I would like the guys in the room to humor me just for a moment. I'd like you to read those words with me, but I'm gonna change one word to make it just a little more personal if I might take some liberty with God's word. We're gonna change one word. And would you, men here who are with me, would you say these words with me? The hour has come for me to wake from sleep. Yes, it has, and I've heard you. So if you are down for being forged and formed into something new and discovering what it means to lean into the relationship you have and to live out the responsibility that you've been given as a man in this world, here's the first of five things that you need to know. The other four, we're gonna talk about the rest of this series, but the first is this, that a man who is leaning into the biblical image of what it means to be a guy after God's own heart is a man who has a deep reliance upon the person and work of Jesus who at the fundamental, foundational level of his soul knows that he is nothing without the grace of God. 
Now, we live in a day and age and we have corrupt human hearts that send us, obviously, a totally different message. And the message of our day and age and the cry of our broken hearts is this, that what we want, what we want is pleasure and power. And that what we have every right to is all the pleasure in the world and all the power in the world. And the world is set up to tell you exactly what your heart wants to hear. More pleasure, more pleasure, man. More pleasure, man. More power, man. You have the right to it. In fact, you're not a real man unless you're able to please yourself and show the world you've got power. And the whole world tells you that and your heart sings when it hears it. And that's where every, every stereotypical vision of what a man looks like comes from. The man who is playing too many video games the man who is off the deer lease too much, the man who's playing too much golf because it's all about pleasure, or scrolling on his phone looking at girls that he's not married to, it's all about pleasure. Or the guy who has got the truck that's lifted up, or the guy who's driving the brand new Rivian and all his friends have a, have a drop jaw so impressed by his prowess and how much money he's got, or the guy who's always got a flashy new pair of shoes or a brand new watch or who's got a new deer lease with more acreage, or who's always sitting in the box seats at the Astros because, you know, he's crushing it at work. He's showing the world that he's got power. That's the picture of the stereotypical male, right? That's the picture. But here's, here's the opportunity that you have. You have the opportunity to know that if you build your life on pleasure and power, you are building your life on something that Jesus calls sand. Then in the end, at best, it'll just all be taken away from you when you die. At best. And at worst, it crumbles for you while you live. And because you're constantly pursuing your own pleasure and demonstrations of your own power, you are no good to the people who actually rely on you. Because in the end, you, you grow bitter towards them because their needs are a threat to your pleasure and your power. What you know is that you have to build your life on something bigger, something deeper. And that bigger thing, that deeper thing, is the one who loves you without end, who has lived for you, died for you, risen for you, and who has defeated the one thing in life that you'll never have power over, which is death itself. But given the victory to you. And so what you know is that you, you, you should not build your life on your own expression of pleasure and your own pursuit of power, but you should build your life upon a deep reliance upon the one who holds all power in his hands and who loves you, Jesus Christ. And what that looks like is you looking around at your life and being really awesome and saying, I have this, I have this, I have this, I have this, I want that, I want that, I need that, I love that. And even though these might be good things, you are saying to yourself, I know that I'm a broken, sinful man in need of a savior. Do I love that thing more than I love my Lord? In fact, that's your homework for this week, guys. Go through your life the work that you do, the people you enjoy, the hobbies that you have, all those things, whatever it is. And as you're in the midst of it, as you're experiencing it or enjoying it, ask yourself this question, do I love this thing more than I love my Lord? And if you are being honest with yourself a thousand times this week, you'll have to say yes. Yes, I am. And what you do in that moment when you realize, man, I love, I love this paycheck, or I love this car I just bought, or I love, I love the feeling I get when I look at these photos on my phone. Like I, I love that more than I love my Lord. What you immediately do is you just confess that. You admit that to yourself. You admit that to your God. Maybe even admit that to your spouse. 
You confess that, and then what you receive is the promise that you are still loved in spite of that. What you, what you preach to yourself, man of God, is this truth. Even though I am a mess, and I love things more than my Lord, my Lord loves me through Jesus Christ more than I can comprehend. Thanks be to God. And it is that constant confession met with absolution, confession met with absolution over the course of time that loosens your grip on all that stuff and anchors you more deeply in the one truth that matters most, that you are lost without the love of God in Jesus Christ, but you have the love of God in Jesus Christ. A man made in God's image who is living out his biblical masculine identity is a man who is deeply dependent upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with this. This is an image of the Stowe School in England. It looks like a really, really fancy private school, but in actuality, it's a public boarding school for boys. It's been around for 100 years. In fact, this year was its 100th anniversary. It's now a school for both boys and girls, about 800 students, but when it was founded, its first headmaster, a guy named J.F. Roxborough, had a really, really beautiful vision for what he wanted to accomplish in the lives of young men who went to school at Stowe School. His vision was this. He wanted to form young men who were acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. I love that vision. He wanted to form young men who were acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. That is a compelling, simple, but beautiful vision for the kind of men they wanted these young men to become. In my mind, the ultimate problem with us guys in this day and age is that we lack a compelling vision of who in the world we're supposed to be. Are you ready and open, maybe for the first time, to receive a new one, a better one? You, as a man, you do have a responsibility to discover what it means to be a man after God's own heart for the good of the world, to lean into your masculinity, what it means to be a man in this world, but here's a hint, it has nothing to do with the cultural expressions of masculinity at all. Many times, often within the church even. What it comes down to is having this relationship through which God can form you and forge you into a new kind of human being. A kind of man who, a kind of man who above all else is deeply dependent upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, which then makes him utterly reliable for the people around him. Because he's able to look at the people around him and say, lean on me as I lean upon the Lord. And because I've already forsaken pleasure and power, I will not grow bitter towards you or find some secret outlet for those things apart from you. I will give my life to love you and serve you. Because though on my own I am not worth leaning upon, I am leaning upon someone who loves me more than I can comprehend. Men were made for the world to lean upon them. But the best kind of man can be leaned upon not just at a dance but in dire circumstances 
because he himself is leaning upon the Lord. More next week. Amen.